Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I've got the wonderful Beth with me today. Beth, how are you? I'm very well, Chris. How are you? It's been a while since we've done one of these together. It, it has. It's been a very long time, it feels. Um, and mm-hmm. We've got a bit of a case of deja vu today, haven't we? Uh, just just a little bit. We're joined this afternoon by uh, Carl Shaw. Now, we've spoken with Carl before, last about not long, about almost a year ago, I think, if not that maybe yeah about a year or so um when we talked about his book the killing of lloyd george which we both highly enjoyed um but carl is is a writer and historian who has written books such as the mammoth book of losers which always another excellent title uh the killing of lloyd george as we said we spoke about last year and he's back again we love having our repeat guests and he's back to talk to us about his book the first showman the extraordinary mr astley the englishman who invented the modern circus so carl hello welcome back to history hack hello yeah it's great to be talking to you again wonderful so let's just jump right in obviously the man who is this book refers to, the extraordinary Mr. Astley, Philip Astley. Um, let's talk a little bit about his background, as it were, and how he sort of comes to be where he is, because he has quite quite a rise in his life, doesn't he? He does, yes. Um, Philip Astley, he was born in 1742 in Newcastle under Lyme in North Staffordshire. Um, he was the son of a cabinet maker, and that for a while was also the trade that he was apprenticed to. Um, but he had a very poor relationship with his father, Edward. Uh, Edward Astley was an unreliable parent and he was in and out of debtors prison. And so when Philip was 17, he ran away from home and he joined the army. Um, he signed up for the legendary fighting 15th Light Dragoons and he served overseas fighting for his country in the Seven Years' War. Um, He very quickly became a master horseman, a swordsman, and he was a war hero. And he he distinguished himself in battle. He he captured an enemy standard, and he saved the life of the Duke of Brunswick. And he rose to the rank of Sergeant Major when he was a relatively young man. And I think that if he'd stayed in the army... He would have had a great career and he would have probably gone on and become a, uh, risen to the rank of general. He was that sort of person. Um, as a token of appreciation for his conspicuous bravery, he was discharged from the army uh, and they gave him a horse. His old commanding officer gave him a horse 
and this would be his uh, meal ticket in Civvy Street and the beginning of an even more famous career as the creator of the modern circus. So he invented what the world came to know as the greatest show on earth. For a while, he was the most famous entertainer in Britain. He toured the whole country. Uh, at a time when most top performers, they would stray no further than London or the major cities. He went absolutely everywhere. And uh, he had a famous building in London called Astley's Amphitheatre. And going to Astley's was an instantly re uh, identifiable storyline. And it was used by some of the greatest writers of the day, including Charles Dickens, Austin and Thackeray, amongst others. And he ranked in importance and popularity with the greatest uh, theatrical characters of the age. Um, and the circus was an incredibly popular format. And within 50 years of Philip Astley's death in 1814, um, there was a circus on almost every continent. So, yeah, he's, he's, he has quite an impact, doesn't he? But before we get into that, and it still sounds, even though I wrote it, I've read, reread the question again and again, and it just sounds stupid. But how, what was London like when he got back from from war before um, we started? Because it's, it is very, very different to what it is now, which I know is a very dumb thing to say. But <laughs> yes, it was a very important city, but it was a very dangerous time politically in London um, that summer. The summer that when he first but on his first circus uh, acts, there was some of the worst urban violence in modern British history, uh, the Gordon riots. A couple of years earlier, the government had started to relax strict laws, um, denying Catholics the right to vote and so on. And there were many Protestants who were very unhappy about the reforms and there were wide-scale riots throughout London. And um, the protest quickly turned into an out-of-control mob and it, they went burning and destroying everything they came across. And for, for about a week, uh, London was submerged in the throes of civil war and there was a mob raging across the capital. So it was, yeah, there were very difficult times. So obviously it's a different environment than the London, as, as Chris said, the London we're used to. But it's interesting that that sort of political stage, that's what's going on in, in the background, to the, is highlighting his, his first summer uh, as as a, as a showman, um, what are the first steps that he sort of takes into taking on this role? Because I don't imagine that you wake up one morning and go, right, I'm going to have a circus. I'm going to be a showman. I imagine there's stuff that that leads up to that. Well, it, it almost happened by accident. Um, mm. So to begin with, he was an incredible horseman. And by the way, he 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 married a lady called Patty Jones, and she was a also an incredible, a very accomplished rider. And um, they decided simply that they wanted to set up a riding school. But they knew that there was a lot of money to be made at that time by trick riding. It was an incredibly popular attraction all over London. I think in North London and Islington, there were um, venues where thousands of people would go on a Sunday and see these um, people performing the most incredible feats on horseback. It was hugely popular. So to begin with, he and Patty just wanted to do a bit of trek riding to raise enough money to set up a riding school. But they found out that there was so much money to be made from the daredevil trek riding that that's what they stuck to. So um, in 1768, uh, they found a, a very muddy field on the south bank of the Thames, 
uh, in Lambeth, and he staked out a 42-foot or 13-metre ring, and people came from miles around to watch them do these amazing tricks on horseback. So they would perform acrobatics on the back of the horse while he was galloping around this tiny ring. He'd ride with one foot on the saddle and then the other foot touching his head. He could he could mount and dismount his horse at full gallop. He could vault over two or three horses or stand on one leg, lay on a horse back. Um, I think he could actually perform a headstand in the saddle as the horse is cantering around the ring as well. His wife's speciality, by the way, was that she could ride around the ring covered with the swarm of bees. <laughs> um, so from that beginning, quite simply, Philip had an old war wound and it was playing him up and he couldn't manage several performances a day. So one day he had the idea of, to give them a break from the trick riding, of putting a clown in the ring. And that was quite popular. So then he hired some acrobats and then some strong men, strong men and so on. Um, so the day that Philip Astley put the clown in the ring that was truly the birth of the modern circus. And that 42 feet or 13 metre ring became the global standard and it's still used 250 years later. It doesn't vary anywhere else in the world. Um, and he was, he was finally forced into retirement for his trick riding at the age of 38 because of his old injuries. So he assumed the role of ringmaster, circus ringmaster. So that's another role he also invented. And some of the kind of slapstick circus routines that he was doing 250 years ago are still staples of the circus all around the world to this day with some slight variations. And the interesting thing is that Astley's original circus was all about amazing horsemanship and human feats of skill and daring. Um, it's fair to say that in those days, human sensitivity to animal suffering was not widely shared in Georgian England, to put it mildly. Um, but, but Astley believed that the only way to train his horses was with kindness. Um, he didn't exhibit wild animals um, and the introduction of lions and elephants, that only came fashionable long after his death. And I think it's fair to say that the mistreatment of circus animals in the century after his death has perhaps made some people a little bit wary about celebrating the circus. But Philip Astley was never a part of that. His circus was just about horsemanship and human feats of skill. So he, he, he really does sort of set the blueprint, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he really did set the global standard. And even in his old um, regimental colours of gold and red and blue, they are still the standard circus colours to this day. And they use you know, circuses, most circuses still use brass bands and that's what he started out with. So, yeah, he definitely laid down the, um, the template. Because um, theatre and sort of outside entertainment, I mean, we, we, we on History Hack don't like Cromwell anyway, but he Cromwell really sort of got rid of all that sort of stuff in the 1640s and 50s. How, how had entertainment changed in the century before Astley came along? Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. Oliver Cromwell really rang the death knell for theatre in Britain and he had them all shut down in 1642. Um, when the theatres reopened uh, under King Charles II, the king issued just two royal patents, uh, one to Drury Lane and the other to Covent Garden. And they were the only theatres who had the right to put on 
theatrical entertainment legally. And at the same time, they were banning anybody else from doing the same. So effectively, the two theatres royals situated within a few yards of each other in Covent Garden, they had a duopoly over the whole London theatre. Um, obviously, two theatres just couldn't you know, satisfy public demand, and there were still illegal theatres and other entertainments springing up all over. Um, at first, the authorities used to turn a blind eye, um, but in 1737, the government drove through an infamous licensing act. And from now on, uh, anyone performing a play without a license uh, could be thrown into prison. And all new plays had to be submitted to the Lord Chamberlain for vetting. Uh, and anyone failing to comply could be heavily fined or put out of business. And that was the situation, actually, that existed more or less until the 1960s. Um, as far as the circus is concerned, you could argue the toss as to whether a circus is theatre, um, but the law decided that a circus was a theatre, so technically, Philip Astley, he needed a licence to operate. He, he wasn't the sort of person that cared much for rules and regulations, so he just ignored them, and he carried on without a licence. So basically, for most of his career, he operated Ill illegally, and he was always under the threat of being closed down and thrown into prison which in fact, fact he once was, but he didn't bother him in the slightest and he just carried on as before. Excellent. I mean, I like someone who uh, doesn't stick to uh, to the rules and the fact that he just kept going, good good, good for him. Um, so let's just sort of think, move forward a little bit and you have to illuminate our, our listeners on this because this was something I don't know about either. I had not heard of it before it was mentioned by in your book what well, let us talk about the circus war what on earth is it who did it happen between how long did it go on for and what how does that relate to astley and sort of his progression and where he takes circus well it's ob it obviously didn't go unnoticed by um, philip astley's competitors uh, in the in the local entertainment industry that he was doing very well out of his new circus format um, it was incredibly popular and he was making a huge amount of money and there were a lot of people who were very jealous of his success and naturally there, there were a few people who wanted to copy what he'd done. Um, he didn't mind competition because he, he thought, he always believed that his was the best and he was, uh, you know, head and shoulders above everybody else. Um, but then... About four years after he started up, one of his old employees, there was a young um, horseman, a trick rider called Charles Hughes. He set up an almost identical circus business just a few hundred yards away from Astley's. And when Hughes' new circus opened, it was clear that it was almost a direct copy of Astley's show. Now, when Astley saw that Hughes' show was almost a replica of his own. He was absolutely livid. Um, and he was a big guy, and he wasn't a guy to be crossed, really. And he, he trusted Hughes and treated him well as an employee. And um, it seemed to him that all along, Hughes was being was using him for his own ends. And as far as Astley was concerned, this was the vilest treachery. And it got personal and quite nasty. And for a number of years, each man tried to outclass and destroy the other's business. And this went on and on. 
Um, there were furious sort of neo-libelous exchanges in the newspapers. Um, for example, on one occasion, three of Hughes's best horses died in mysterious circumstances. And Hughes blamed Astley. He claimed he poisoned them. And Astley... Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Felt sufficiently slighted, he had to issue an angry denial and threaten to sue Hughes. And so it went on and it got very, very ugly and it lasted a number of years. But actually, the upshot was that their public rivalry was really good for both venues because not only did it generate publicity, um, people, people would go to both shows to see what the fuss was all about. But the competition, of course, also spurred Ashley on to create ever more ambitious and exciting entertainment. So probably if Charles Hughes hadn't set up shop right next door to Astley's and this war hadn't started, um, I don't think the circus would have been nearly as good because he was forced to kind of, you know, bring in the best entertainments from all over the world, really, into, into Lambeth. Bit of a, a bit of healthy competition. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I'm probably going to butcher my, my French pronunciation has always been quite bad, but is this what leads to the amphi, uh, amphitheatre anglaise? You got it, yeah. yeah. Um, well, his, Astley's ambitions always extended far beyond, beyond his own country. Um, he relished the opportunity to take his um, brand new circus entertainment to new audiences in unfamiliar and challenging surroundings, and, and eventually he would he would travel all over Europe uh, with his circus, but he really loved France, and um, every year during the English off season, uh, he would tour France with his show, and the French absolutely loved him, uh, probably even more so than in England. And uh, he performed a couple of times for the King of France at Versailles, um, and it had always been Astley's ambition to open a permanent circus in in Paris. And so that's what he did. The amphitheatre anglais was, um, it was a wooden structure uh, with a ground plan laid out exactly as you'd expect a modern circus to look. And every, every autumn, as soon as his London amphitheatre closed, the Astleys left Lambeth and they took themselves off to Paris and they'd spend um, three months of the year in the amphitheatre anglais. And it absolutely took Paris by storm and left a great circus legacy in France to the extent that I would say to this day the name Philip Astley is still much better known in France than it is in the UK. And I went to Paris last year to look up the place where he started his first circus, and there's a, there's a monument there to it, you know, there's a plaque, and it will tell you all about the great Philip Astley. Uh, there's not so much here, though, which is a shame. 
And of course, eventually he retired to Paris and he's buried there. So that's that's quite interesting that his sort of notoriety post post his his death is actually in France rather than necessarily in the UK. When you know we all know what a circus is and we all have been to circuses at some point in our life. But before sort of this podcast and and looking up for it, I couldn't really have told you, told you who who had any sort of um, massive role in, in getting that to where it is. So that's I found that very interesting that he's so. In, prevalent in in france in french history yes it, I, I think so i mean he, he, i i also live in newcastle underline which mm. is where philip Astley was born and i didn't i'd never heard of him until about a few years ago and um i thought first of all why haven't i heard of this guy you know i'd like to think you know i I know a little bit about history. I'd like to think I knew a little bit about the local history. Never heard of him. Um, and the other thing that struck me is, how, how do you invent the circus? I thought that was an extraordinary concept. Um, surely it's always been around. You know, I just thought it was one of those things that had been around since, I don't know, the Romans. Yeah. But, but it hadn't. He actually, he, he sat down and thought about it, and he created a format, the ring, the 42-meter ring, and the the clowns and everything else, and it was absolutely his. Nobody else had done it. Yeah. And so, obviously, we've just talked about his, his time in France. What happens, what's his next moves when he when he gets back to, to London? Like, is he planning to expand? Is he planning to differentiate on the types of entertainment? Or, or, or is he wanting to get even bigger and better? Or is he just happy with what he's doing? No, he was, well, he was very, very ambitious. And these were his golden years, really. Uh, back in London... He built himself a grand new circus, um, and it was near to Westminster Bridge, just right across the River Thames from the Houses of Parliament. Astley's Amphitheatre, as it was known. Um, and <laughs> despite being enormously fat, um, he was also an expert swimmer, and he promoted his new enterprise by floating down the Thames on, the back, on his back from Westminster to Blackfriars waving a Union Jack in each hand. Um, so he, he really was a showman. Um, but Astley's Amphitheatre was one of the most famous venues in London. Like most of his um, circuses, it was built from wood and it burned down twice, but he just he just rebuilt it and started over again. And during this period, um, Astley's became, um, as I said, one of the most famous venues in London. And the building was still being used for circus entertainments. Um, for about another hundred years after his death. Um, he had his fingers in all sorts of pies. There were other various other activities as well. I mean, every every year on the 4th of June from 1783, at his own expense, he'd, he'd throw a giant annual outdoor firework display to honour the King George III's birthday. And at these events, he'd have the latest pyrotechnics um, which were considered hugely successful, although there was the odd fatality. I think, I think in 1798, 1792, um, his head carpenter was killed by an explosion of gunpowder while making the fireworks. And in the meantime, he toured extensively in Europe. So these these were great years for Astley. And he did, yeah, I would say he was probably the best known um, performer in England because he went on the road and he toured the whole of Britain, and he was definitely really well-known in London as well. 
we've kind of mentioned bits about his personality. Um, <laughs> and I love the image of him floating down the uh, the river with two Union Jacks, very reminiscent of a former mayor of London coming down a zip, well, getting stuck on a zip line, but that sort of <laughs> showing up thing. Um, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. But um, what, what was he like as a person, though? Well, there's a physical presence. I mean, he was literally larger than life, and he was impossible to ignore. As I mentioned, in his later years, he put on a lot of weight. Um, but when he was a young man, he was very athletic, very broad shoulders, shouldered. He was um, he was over six feet tall at the time, when the average height was around about five foot seven. He was barrel chested, and he had a voice like a foghorn. And he was known to everyone as Big Philip. And um, another nickname he had was the handsomest man in England. So he, he was quite a striking figure. He was a very forceful personality. He was huge. He was an outrageous, booming, opinionated man. And it's reasonable to assume he wasn't always the easiest to get along with. Um, he had quite a hot temper and he could threaten. He could, he could sort of switch from being charming to quite threatening just you know, in, in an instant. Um, he was very deeply and fiercely loyal to king and country. He was very proud of his credentials as a war hero, and he wasn't shy about telling people about it. He used to tell his paying customers many times. He'd say, I have bled for my country many times, and I will gladly bleed for it again. Um, and he was a patriot, but he wasn't a, he wasn't a xenophobe. And he worked all over Europe, and he made Paris his second home. And uh, he brought to his circus French people, Germans, Italians, Spanish performers. And during his lifetime, he provided work from people all over the world. I mean, there's no sugarcoating the fact that he was a—he really was a ruthless competitor. But I think you needed to be tough to survive in the uh, in the cutthroat cutthroat world of Georgian showmen. Mm. You had to be tough. Um, but he was doing this a hundred years before, you know, P.T. Barnum, the American um, circus impresario. I mean, Astley set the bar in his pr profession, and he was trailblazing advertising and promotional techniques, and posters, publicity stunts, and pre-show parades before anybody else thought of it. Um, but but he never adopted the um, the cheating practices of, of Barnum and mm -hmm. some of those. Others who followed. He was essentially, Ashley was an honest man and he believed in giving his audience good value. And his shows were always of the highest quality that he could possibly manage. And uh, yeah, he was a huge, brave man. And I suppose, much like any other thing that happened in the Georgian era, there is one thing that we can sort of bookend the entire period with is the, like the industrial revolution and the changes in um you know people moving from the countryside to the city for work opportunities and the change in culture and the change in society all sort of there's a massive massive change at that time um how was astley and his business affected by that age of of revolution it's it it helped in one sense because um, people had the, the industrial revolution. Really, it put it put more money into people's pockets, and so ordinary people could go out and, and see his entertainment. Uh, I think, um, and there was a revolution abroad as well. Um, the French Revolution hit his business hard financially. 
Uh, he had to close his Paris venue and stop touring Europe. And um, the other, I think the other big knock-on effect on his life personally was that in um, 1793, as a result of the French Revolution, Britain went to war with France again. And um, the British army was desperate for volunteers. And uh, so desperate, in fact, that when Philip Ashley volunteered his services to king and country. He was allowed to re-enlist in his old regiment at the grand old age of 51, which is pretty much unheard of. And at this point, he wasn't he wasn't too well. He got old war wounds. He was he had illness. He, he 51 years old. That was quite a considerable age to be doing something, joining the army again in those days. He had a lame leg, and his his wife and his son thought he was absolutely mad. And by this time, he was an internationally famous theatrical manager, but off he went to Flanders um, to fight in the war, um, which was quite quite amazing. And he also spent a considerable sum of his own money to provide his regiment with better clothing. He brought loads of uh, flannel, and he set all the women um, at his amphitheater to work making waistcoats for all the men in his regiment. Wow, that's really quite impressive, <laughs> especially like you said, fifty-one and going to going to war in the Georgian period is, unless you're a, a general, that's pretty unheard of. Yeah, it was extraordinary, an extraordinary thing to do. He'd done it all once as a young man, and he went and did it again, and it caused quite a stir at the time because he was internationally famous. And the idea of this guy just upping sticks and going off to fight for his country was truly extraordinary at the age of fifty-one. Did he um, did he see much action while he was out there? The second time around, I don't think he did. He was sort of in charge of all the horses because he, I think he was the company, his company's resident, resident horsemaster. Um, mm. But all the time he was out there as well, he was making notes and he was sending um, he, he was he was sending them home. And his um, Bacchus amphitheatre, they were laying on entertainments based on some of the battles that he'd heard about. So he was sort of making a bit of a profit for for himself as well. He was sort of the very early war correspondent, if you like, yeah. Yeah, well, why not make it work for you? Um, but one of his um, one of his protégés, uh, sort of to bookend this, takes it takes a circus takes a circus on tour from Philadelphia to St. Petersburg, doesn't he? Yeah, there were, well, there were, there's, 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 his old nemesis, Charles Hughes, um, who this was the guy who'd set up the um, the circus that had sparked the war at the circuses. Charles Hughes took himself off to Russia uh, to work with, I guess she was the most notorious woman of the age, Empress Catherine the Great. And um, the Russian court were huge fans of uh, English horsemanship. English horsemanship apparently was um, the best in Europe. And so she imported a load of... Uh, English thoroughbred horses, and um, Charles Hughes um, ran that side of things for a while. For her. and Charles Hughes is is often given the credit for introducing uh, the circus to Russia. Um, might be overstating it slightly because his shows only consisted of trick riding. There were no acrobats or clowns or jugglers or all, all the other bits and pieces that we associate with the circus. Um, but he he does deserve credit for bringing the main attraction of the circus, which was the riding act, into the circus ring to Russia. He took that to Russia, and um, 
without Hughes, the Russian circus would have never taken off so quickly or become so all-conquering because it is, again, it's incredibly important in uh, in Russia, the circuses. I think we've all heard, heard of the Moscow State Circus that um, used to tour the UK from, I don't know if they still do it. No, they probably don't do it at the moment, but they used to back in the day. The Moscow State Circus was a big thing over here. So it's fair to say that Charles Hughes was a very important mainspring of an institution that would one day become one of Russia's greatest uh, cultural exports. And while, while Hughes um, was making the circus popular in Russia, another former apprentice of Astley's was trying his luck at the other end of the world. It was a guy called uh, John Bill Ricketts. He was born in Staffordshire. And in 1793, he went to America and he opened America's first ever circus in Philadelphia. And at that time, Philadelphia was the US capital, I think. Yeah, um, yeah he opened on the corner of 12th and Market Streets. He built um, a circus arena identical to Astley's. And uh, these performances owed more or less everything he'd learned from Astley. And it was a mixture of horse riding, acrobatics, rope dancing and climbing. And of course, we all know about the American circus. It's, you know, biggest in the world. Um, and as for, as for Astley, I mean, his final years weren't great. His, his health deteriorated. Um, his touch for finding new talent and new businesses had started to desert him. Um, his, his last venture, which was a, a new circus he opened uh, just off the Strand in London, that made colossal losses and he was forced to sell. Um, and he took himself off to Paris and retired and he died uh, in his 72nd year from what was termed gout in the stomach. And he was buried in the Père Lachaise Cemetery, ways, uh, which is quite a famous cemetery where the likes of, I can't think of the top of who was buried, buried, built in. Is uh, Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison's buried there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, they've lost they've lost Astley's grave. They can't locate it, but um, there are people working on that to try and find where he is again. Um, the other sad thing was that Astley, he really wanted to start his own circus dynasty, but he, he had a son called John. He, he was a very highly talented guy. Um, and he was a circus celebrity in his own right, John Astley was, but he was killed by... Well, he drank himself to death, basically. And so uh, Philip Astley, although still revered all the world over, over as the father of the circus, the shame is that he's, he was all, all but forgotten in his homeland. And so on the 200, 250th anniversary of the first circus, um, which was actually shortly before uh, COVID, the hardback version of the first showman, the extraordinary Mr. Astley, was published and in January the paperback version will be published as well. Wonderful well that's been very interesting and very illuminating for for both of us so th thank yeah. you very much Carl for coming to talk to us about um, the your book The Extraordinary Mr Astley and uh, hopefully many of our listeners will look forward to it as as well. It's been my pleasure yes and I hope they do because he really was uh, uh, it, 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 yeah, it really is a great story, yeah.
um, or one that doesn't deserve to be sort of I don't want to use the word forgotten, but, you know, sort of misplaced in popular culture. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris, and Mop Master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.